Let's pray together. Father, we ask that now through your word, you would teach our hearts to trust you, to know you, to feel the gravity of what it is that you've promised through your son to be with us to the end of the age. And Lord, I pray that through what we see here this morning, you would show us the glory of your grace, the power of your forgiveness and your overcoming love. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to see not as man sees, but as you see. And give us hearts that know that the weak things of the world and the despised things of the world are the things that you choose. Make us people who know that even if the world despises the good life, it's the way to joy. It's the way to enjoy your presence. So Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word, and we pray that even though this text is not dealing directly with the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be exalting him before us. And we ask this with confidence, knowing that this is exactly what the Spirit of God will do. And so we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 46. And we've come in our study of Genesis to the moment when the people of Jacob, Jacob and his sons and the sons of his sons, are going to descend into Egypt. And to understand the import of this, for them to leave the land of promise and go into Egypt, we, we have to think biblically about what's happening here as they leave the land of promise. So um, we, we've talked some as we've gone through Genesis about how God built the world as a cosmic temple, and in that way of thinking about the world, uh, the, the, the holy garden, the Garden of Eden, was something like a symbolic holy of holies. And man was driven out of the garden, driven out of God's presence because of sin. And now, uh, as, the, as the story has unfolded, God has promised to Abraham and to his seed that he's going to give them this land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan, the, the land of promise, it's as though that land becomes a, a, a reiteration or a redo of the Garden of Eden because the, the understanding is that in that land, they will once again enjoy the presence of God. They will be with God. And so in this way of thinking about the world, you have the place where God is, which is the place of life, and then outside the place where God is, is the unclean realm of the dead. So for the people of Israel to leave the land of promise and to go into the land of Egypt is for them to go into the unclean realm of the dead. It's almost as though they're descending into the land of Sheol. And so this is, this is what Jacob is going to be confronted with. Uh, here in this chapter, in Genesis chapter 46. So I would invite you to look with me here at, at uh, the, end, the beginning of Genesis 46, and, and I would just recall 
uh, to you what we saw last week at the end of chapter 45 where uh, Joseph's brothers come back to their father and they tell him that Joseph is alive and uh, Jacob comes to believe this good news and he says at the end of chapter 45, it is enough, Joseph my son is still alive, I will go and see him before I die. And this is where we pick up the narrative. So chapter 46 verse 1, so Israel took his journey with all that he had. And I would just pause here and note, as, as we've seen, as we've worked through Genesis, God has promised to Abraham three big categories of things. He's promised him land, that is the land of Canaan, seed, that is offspring, descendants, and he's promised to make Abraham a great nation, and then he's promised to bless him. He said to, to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So I point this out here because when Jacob takes all that he had, what he's doing is he's taking the blessing. God has blessed the, the descendants of Abraham with all of these possessions, and Jacob is now loading up all that he has. And as we continue through the passage, we'll see that not only is he taking the blessing, he's also taking the seed, the offspring. So all that Jacob possesses and all of the children that are the outworking of God's promise, they're, they're now being loaded up and, and they're going to be taken out of the land. That's the third part of the promise, into the unclean realm of the dead that Egypt represents. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And this is a beautiful statement. And, and the reason this is beautiful is because this is what Abraham did. You may remember that back in, in Genesis 21, Abraham had entered into these disputes with the Philistines, and they were bickering over wells and who owned those wells. And then they made a covenant, and then Abraham offered sacrifices to his God back in Genesis 21 at Beersheba. And Beersheba means something like the well of the oath or the well of the covenant. And then Isaac does the very same thing. Isaac also, in Genesis 26, has these disputes with the Philistines over these wells of water. And then, like his father Abraham, they had entered into a treaty arrangement with the Philistines. And then, like his father Abraham, Isaac offered sacrifices uh, to the God of his father Abraham... And once again, this is at the well of the oath, this place called Beer Sheba. And what's, what's so meaningful about this uh, has to do with the journey that we've seen Jacob on through this, this book of Genesis. You know, if, if Jacob lived in our woke cancel culture, he long ago would have been canceled for his sins. I mean, he stole the blessing of his father from his older brother. And then he entered into a, a polygamous relationship, having uh, on the way to defrauding his father-in-law. And, and then, uh, he, you know, not only did he steal the blessing uh, from his father, he had defrauded his brother. And then he enters into that polygamous relationship, and, 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 on, and on it goes with Jacob. Jacob, uh, we've seen as we've continued across Genesis, in, in that culture's terms, Jacob was a scoundrel of the worst order. And the God of the Bible mercifully appeals, appears to Jacob and mercifully turns his heart. You'll remember that episode when the, Jacob is actually wrestling with God. Jacob, you know, Abraham sees the Lord and he falls down in worship. 
Isaac worships the Lord. Uh, Jacob sees God and he attacks him. And, and in the process of that, that wrestling match, God touches Jacob, Jacob's hip and, and he makes him a cripple for life. He breaks him. And through this, through this long process, which has been ongoing, you'll remember that when they load up to finally go home, Jacob says to all the people with him, put away the foreign gods. You know, they've, they've still got these idols that they're worshiping. And it's as though as we come now to near the end of his life, Jacob is worshiping the God of his father. So th this is beautiful because it shows us that Jacob understands his own sin. You read those words and it says there in Genesis 46.1, he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Why does he need to sacrifice? Because he knows he's a sinner. And he understands, even though Leviticus hasn't been written yet, when this episode takes place, he understands that the life of the body is in the blood. And that through the, the shedding of blood comes the forgiveness of sins. And so Jacob, by faith, is doing what he needs to do to show that he trusts the Lord and he is being saved by grace through faith. Now today we don't offer sacrifices because the Lord Jesus came and the Lord Jesus brought to fulfillment all of the, the Old Testament sacrifices that sacrifices that anticipated his death on the cross. All the, these Old Testament sacrifices, they're all pointing forward to the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so the good news for all of us here this morning is that even though we are painfully aware of our sins, even though we've all done things of which we're ashamed, and if the culture knew everything that we'd done, they might cancel us. But in spite of all that, God has put Christ forward and offered him as a sacrifice of propitiation so that everyone who looks to him for salvation, everyone who acknowledges their sin, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm, by God's standards, according to God's righteousness, I've done what is wrong. But Jesus died in my place. God justifies those people. And I think that uh, here Moses is showing us an anticipation of that as he tells us of Jacob sacrificing. And as a sort of outworking of that, verse 2, God spoke to Israel. Notice how uh, Jacob here is being referred to as Israel. There, 46.1, Israel took his journey. 46.2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And maybe this recalls to your mind, as I think it should, the way that Abraham, back in Genesis 15, had God appear to him in a vision in the night. And you'll recall how on that evening, uh, as Abraham was put into a deep sleep, there was a covenant that God cut between himself as Abraham when the smoking fire pot passed between the pieces of the sacrifice that had been offered. So what's happening here, by, by the repetition of the, the vision of the night and the recalling of Abraham, Jacob is being portrayed for us in Abrahamic terms. It's as though at last Jacob has come to a place where spiritually he is like his father Abraham, who Genesis 15, 6, believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. 
So if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're on the way to becoming a Christian, or maybe you think, yeah, I'm, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfectly clear on what all that entails, I would encourage you to just lock in on Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Abraham trusted God. He believed God, what God said, and because of that faith, God counted that faith to Abraham for righteousness. And if you will do that, if you will believe the Lord, it will be reckoned to you for righteousness. We would urge you, we would plead with you to do that. And then in, as, as verse 2 continues, we get more uh, reminiscence of Abraham. So here in Genesis 46, 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And you remember in Genesis 22 that God called to Abraham, and Abraham's response was, here I am. In fact, three times in Genesis 22, Abraham uses this, this phrase, here I am. It, it keeps getting reiterated. And I think that when Jacob responds this way, it is the author's intention for us to see Jacob ready to respond to the Lord the same way that Abraham was ready to respond to the Lord. And on that occasion, Abraham was called to offer up his son Isaac. On this occasion, Jacob is going to be called to leave the land of promise. And, you know, this may not seem so significant to us, but I think for Jacob, if he's, if he's now finally embracing the idea that God's program for saving the world comes by means of God having promised land, seed, and blessing, well, to leave the land of promise is like offering up the seed of promise. You're, you're surrendering your hold on an aspect of what God has promised to you. So God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why does God need to say this to Jacob? Why does God need to tell Jacob not to fear going down into Egypt? Well, you remember what happened when Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, went down into Egypt. He, he goes down into Egypt in Genesis 12, and Pharaoh seizes his wife. And then you might also recall that in Genesis 26, there's a famine in the land. Just, and, and also, Abraham had gone down into Egypt because there was a famine in the land, just as there's a famine that's driving Jacob down into Egypt. In Genesis 26, there's a famine in the land, and the Lord actually says to Isaac, do not go down into Egypt. And now there's a famine in the land, and Jacob is being told, do not fear. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So the Lord is saying to Jacob, you're doing what I want you to be doing. I want you to go down into Egypt. Do not be afraid. This is so significant for us because I know how prominent, how I know from my own experience, how prominent and significant fears are. And I think that perhaps in our, in our culture, which uh, has so much uh, concern about and talk about 
things having to do with the psychological, I think perhaps in our culture fears are, are maybe even more significant. So I'll just share with you a fear that came to me the other day. Um, I got an email uh, requesting a meeting uh, with, from, from two of my superiors at my other job, and I have no idea what that meeting is about. I still don't know what that meeting is about. And you know what, I mean, you can imagine maybe what my heart starts doing. Did I do something wrong? Have I said something to offend these guys? Am I going to get fired? I mean, all these crazy thoughts start entering. I mean, maybe I will be. Who knows? But all these crazy thoughts start coming into my heart. And what I have to do is I have to say, okay, the word of God is true. The gospel is true. And if the worst comes to pass, if they fire me, I'll still be right with God by faith in Christ. I'll be fine. The Lord will provide for me. I'm going to trust the Lord, whatever happens. That doesn't mean I don't place a phone call and say, do you know what this meeting is about? No, he doesn't know what this meeting is about. Okay, well, we'll find out. We have to trust the Lord. We have to hear the Lord saying to us, do not be afraid. So we all have to fight this way, and I would encourage you, the Lord is about to reiterate promises to Jacob in what we're about to read. I would encourage you to lay hold on specific promises from God. And I just want to give you three. And as points of application, I would encourage you, if you don't have these memorized, to commit these promises to memory and to live on these promises. So I suspect that many of you already know Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I hope that you feel in response to a promise like that, whatever happens, I'll be fine. The Lord is with me. The Lord, I belong to him. He, that's the most important thing about me. And then the next one is just a few chapters later. Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4 these beautiful words, the Lord says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. And then the last one is what the Lord Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when he says the words in the, in the old King James, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just let, wrap your arms around those promises and cling to them as you face fears. Here, the Lord says to, to Jacob in verse 3, I am God, the God of your father, which notice how the Lord, the sacrifice having been offered, the Lord doesn't bring up any of Jacob's sins. It's forgiven. It's gone. Nothing about the stolen blessing. Nothing about the defrauded brother. Nothing about the polygamous marriage. Gone. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there in Egypt I will make you into a great nation. Those are the exact words of Genesis 12 too, right? The Lord said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And as we continue through this passage, Moses is going to point out how a number of Jacob's children were actually born outside the land of promise. 
It's, it's as though as Moses rehearses the fulfillment of the promise of seed to Abraham and his offspring, he's anticipating further fulfillment of making them into a great nation, not in the land of promise, but in Egypt. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And then look at, look at this statement in verse 4. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again. As I was reflecting on this this week, uh, many of you know I love the Harry Potter stories. If you don't like Harry Potter, just bear with me. Just tolerate this for a second. Uh, there are these two great moments when um, Harry's dead... It's a magical world, okay? Nobody thinks that this is a real world. That, okay, just bear with me. Enter into the fantasy land for a second. There are these two great moments when Harry's murdered mother and father join him and stay with him. One of them is at the end of book four, uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And in both cases, he's confronting his great enemy, Lord Voldemort. The other is at the end of book seven, as he's, as he's walking out for the final confrontation. In both cases, they, they say the words, we will be with you. We will be with you. It's, it's, it's glorious. How much more glorious to have the living God, the God who made heaven and earth, say to you, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Matthew 28.20, I am with you. And then the Lord tells Jacob at the end of verse 4, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So he's assuring him, Joseph is alive. You will be reunited with Joseph. And Joseph will be, you, be with you until the end of your life. So in response to this assurance, verse 5, Jacob set out from Beersheba. And I would just encourage you to notice how there's there's sacrifice, and then there's word of God, and then there's action, obedient action. So if, if we get this right, this is showing us how the gospel works in our life. We come to realize I'm justified by grace through faith because of what Christ did for me on the cross. I hear the word of God, whether spoken or through my own study of it, and then I take action in accordance with God's instructions. That's what we see Jacob doing here. Verse 5, Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, there's the blessing again, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, all his descendants, all his seed with him. Verse 7, his sons... And his son's sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters, all his offspring, he brought with him into Egypt. Now we're working toward the, the reunion of 
Jacob and Joseph, but rather than tell us about the journey and, and the, the length of time that it took for them to travel from Beersheba down to the land of Egypt, uh, Moses fills up some narrative space here and creates some distance with the list of people that came with Jacob down into Egypt. And so Moses is going to show us the seed that God promised to give. And it's as though he's saying to us, God keeps his promises. God promised seed to Abraham. He promised seed to Jacob. Here's the evidence that God keeps his promises. And as a point of application, I would encourage you to think about your life and think about God's promises and notice how God has kept promises all along the way. God keeps his promise. We need to notice how God keeps his promise. We need to, I mean, I've, I've had experiences before where I've heard something that could be fearful. I've had some crazy, outlandish, outrageous thoughts about what could eventuate, and nothing like that came to pass. So we need to recognize God's faithfulness in our lives. Verse 8, these are the names of the descendants of Israel. Notice this movement freely back and forth between the name Jacob and Israel, who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Now, he, he's, Moses, is gonna, Moses, I think, has thought strategically about how to arrange these names in this particular chapter. So he's going to begin with the descendants of Leah, but he's only going to name Leah for us when we get down to verse 15 and read the words, these are the sons of Leah. So he's first going to tell us about the, the sons uh, that Leah, along with Dinah in verse 15, that um, were born to Jacob. So I'm just going to read through this list here. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and then verse 9, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Obad, Jachin, Zohar, and Sha Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, which, why does Moses note that? Well, he notes that. I think to point to God keeping his promises, even in spite of the way that uh, there was this, this uh, desire to avoid intermarrying with the Canaanites so that they would not take on Canaanite worship practices. And in spite of their uh, failure at points, God continues to keep his promises. Verse 11, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, we remember what happened to them in chapter 38, Shelah, and then the sons of Tamar, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paran Aram. Not in the land of promise. All those children of Leah were born outside the land. It's as, though, it's as though Moses is saying, God has promised to multiply them in the land of Egypt. Here's evidence that he'll keep his promise. These children were born in Padan Aram. Together with his daughter Dinah, all together his sons and his daughters numbered 33. And then we get the children born to Leah's handmaid Zilpah. So Zilpah is going to be named in verse 18, but first her sons, the sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, 
Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. And just as an interesting uh, note about the numbers, you'll notice that there were 33 to Leah, and just under half that to, to Zilpah, 16. And also, if you add those two together, six, uh, 16 and 33, that's 49, which is uh, div divisible by 7. So I think 7s are going to feature prominently, as we'll see as we continue. But before we continue, as we've seen, you get the sons and then the mother named with Leah and with Zilpah. But look what comes next here in verse, 18, verse 19. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife. So it's interesting that Rachel is placed prominently at the beginning and she's identified, as no one else in the list is, as Jacob's wife. Her sons were Joseph and Benjamin. And then, again, children born outside the land of promise. To Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, another non-Israelite, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. Verse 23, the son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. So we go 33 and then 16, it's about halved, uh, from Leah to uh, Zilpah, and then we go 14 with Rachel and seven to uh, uh, Bilhah, so again it's halved, and again 33 plus 16 is 49, and then we have 14, and then the number seven, and this is all going to tally up to 70 at the end of verse 27. So I think Moses wanted to emphasize these, these uh, units of seven, and then the, the total being 70. We read in verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives. Now, the reason this is noted is because all that has been named in the genealogy are the sons of Jacob and the sons of those sons. The wives of the sons have not been named, nor has the rest of the retinue or the rest of the household. There were probably, I suspect, thousands of people who came with Jacob down into Egypt. It was probably a considerable multitude of people that worked with Jacob in this massive operation of caring for all of these flocks and herds, all of these oxen that we've read about, uh, because you'll remember... Back in Genesis 14, Abraham has 318 trained men born in his household. Jacob probably has at least that many, if not more, as the years have increased. So we're only focused here on the sons of Jacob and the sons of those sons. Verse 27, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Why is that important? Why does Moses note that there were 70 people that came down into Egypt with Jacob? Well, you may remember that back in Genesis 10, there was this table of nations where we get the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and, and all of 
those people are enumerated, and it tallies up to 70 nations. And now here near the end of the book of Genesis, the descendants of Jacob, who's being referred to as Israel, also tally 70. And I think my friend Sam Imadi is right in his suggestion that what's being presented here is the new humanity. This is the new humanity through which God is going to fulfill the project that he set out to accomplish when he made the world. When God made the world, he put man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the idea is that God's image bearers would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea with the image and glory of God. They failed, they were driven out, but it's as though God is starting over with the descendants of Israel, and they are going to be the new humanity, the new Adam, if you will, through whom God is going to make them to be fruitful and multiply, and through them God is going to fill the world with his glory. In support of that idea, uh, Adam, in a sense, was the son of God, and in just a few chapters in Exodus 4, the, the people of Israel, who will have been fruitful and multiplied in Exodus chapter 1, are going to be referred to when the Lord says to Moses, uh, go and say to Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. So I think this point, these, these pieces of information point to the people of Israel being the new Adam. Well, that's significant for us because Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the, the same project that God was after when he put Adam in the garden and that he was after when he brought Israel out of Egypt and put them in the land of promise is the project that God is pursuing as he calls people to himself in the church and makes us part of the new creation even as we inhabit this not yet renewed creation. God is at work among us just as he was at work among Israel. And that brings us to this final unit of text where we see the way that Joseph is going to, Joseph and Judah are going to prepare the way for uh, the descent of Israel into Egypt. So verse 28, uh, Jacob, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. This is how Joseph had responded to Benjamin. It's also how Jacob had uh, been reunited with Esau. They had fallen on one another's neck and wept. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who, are, who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says to you, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is, a, is an abomination to the Egyptians. I wanted to get to that point uh, before we reflect some on this, because as we'll see as we continue, um, 
shepherds are necessary to Egypt. Pharaoh himself has flocks. And Goshen is the choice, the best land in Egypt. Goshen is the best place to live in Egypt. It's the best part of the land. And look again at that last phrase of verse 34. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, I think this is interesting because it's as though the, the Egyptians recognize Goshen is the best place to live. And we need sheep. We, we, we need the wool and we need the, the meat and we need, we, we, we got to have those flocks and herds. But we abominate them. And we're not told all the, the cultural ins and outs of why it is that, as the text says, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. But I suspect that there were, there were some features of their culture that made shepherds particularly abhorrent. So something necessary for life that dwells in the best land they have. They loathe it because of their cultural standards. That, that, I think that's what we're looking at. And what's ironic here is that there's a sense in which this is kind of the way it always goes. There, there, are, there are always aspects of the good life that sophisticated culture despises. And, and so the way that, that um, the Egyptians are going to respond to the people of Jacob is often the way that, that even our culture responds to the people of God. As, as we continue, we'll reflect on this some more. So let's continue here in chapter 47. Uh, but but I, I do want to note the way that Joseph has come to understand Egyptian culture, and he's now giving instructions to his brothers about how to navigate Egyptian culture. So Joseph wants his brothers to live in the best part of the land. And so he's, he's given instructions to his brothers about how to make it so that the best part of the land is the land that Pharaoh wants them to live in. So Joseph is very shrewd, I think, here. 47.1, Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any, able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. I think this is remarkable because this is exactly what Joseph wants. And it's exactly what Jacob and his sons desire. They want the best of the land of Egypt. And even better, it's now as though in the same way that Joseph has been exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, now his brothers have been exalted even over Pharaoh's flocks. And... and um, as I thought about how this applies to us today, I think that there are things that our culture despises that we should all recognize. You know, the culture hates that, but that's actually the path to the good life. These things would include things like marriage. More and more in our culture, marriage is despised 
It's even spoken negatively about by some Christians, which I think is really bad on their part. Marriage is despised, and the, the age at which people get married is, is getting older and older. And then we could also say things like, things like sobriety. You know, In our culture, it is often treated as glamorous to indulge yourself, to intoxicate yourself with various kinds of substances. And, and just like I would say marriage is the way to the good life, sobriety is the way to the good life. Things like self-control. You know, sometimes I get the impression in our culture that what's glamorized is for people to exercise no self-discipline, no control over their emotions, and just let their fears and their, their, their failings and their brokenness and their authenticity ruin their lives as they just act out of their emotion. Well, that's not the way to the good life. The way to the good life is to grow in self-control and self-discipline and become people who are able to be wise and dignified and upright. We could also name things like chastity and frugality and even the pursuit and the cultivation of spiritual disciplines. These are all things that our culture glamorizes the opposite. And, and sometimes, even for us, these things can feel like non-glamorous drudgery. And what I'm saying to you is, that's the way to the good life. Don't let Christianity's cultured despisers convince you that the, way, that the best of the land and what is necessary for life is not worth having. It's worth having. It's worth having. And that brings us to this final section, verse 7 of Genesis 47. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. So you've got Pharaoh, Lord of all the earth, in all his pomp and glory, with all of his attendants, and, and they've, they've no doubt come into some hall where everybody recognizes Pharaoh as Lord. Pharaoh would have looked, I, I trust, magnificent. I mean, this is like the Oval Office. And, and no nation in the world at the time is greater than Egypt. And then you've got Jacob, this poor, broken-down shepherd man. And where is God at work? Look at the last words of verse 7. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's one of the most stunning statements in the Bible. You've got this broken-down shepherd, abominable to the Egyptians, and he comes into the presence of the Lord of all the earth, and he blesses him. I think what, what, what has to be going on in Jacob's heart is a knowledge of who God is and a knowledge that all of this earthly splendor is just dust, nothing, chaff that the wind drives away. And what Pharaoh really needs is to know the living God of the Bible. And the word of God is true. And, and Jacob has heard God say, I'm going to bless all the world through Abraham and through Abraham's seed. And my project for saving the world involves the land, seed, and blessing that I've promised to Abraham. So Jacob knows who he is. And Jacob knows who's in position to bless who. And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh in spite of all of the external appearances. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? 
Then Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. And then, I love this next statement. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. This man has come to a place where he enters into the presence of the glory of the king of the the world. And in an other-centered concern for that man's good, he blesses him. And then he reflects on his own life and he says, few and evil. My life has been a, a tale of affliction. And a lot of it grew out of my own sin. It's as though Jacob is acknowledging things would have gone a lot better for me if I would trusted the Lord back when my mother came to me and came up with that project for me to steal the blessing. But I w- I've been evil. And, and this bit about his days being few and them not attaining to the, the years of the life of his fathers. Abraham lived to be 175, Isaac to 180, and Jacob is going to die at 147, we, we read in 47 uh, 28, which is interesting because it means that Jacob had the first 17 years of Joseph's life before Joseph was sold into slavery, and now he's 130, and he's going to get the last 17 years of his own life with his beloved son, Joseph. Jacob blessed Pharaoh, verse 10, and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. There's a famine going on. And and as we continue in the narrative, we're going to see just how severe this famine is. But because of the wise administration of Joseph... Because of the forgiving love of Joseph, there's lavish provision made for Jacob and all of his descendants. So if we summarize what we see in this unit of the text, I think, I think we could say there's nothing more significant, there's nothing more important than being reconciled to God, than being able to live in the presence of God. And we see that in particular with Jacob offering those sacrifices and then God assuring Jacob, answering his fears with the words, I myself will go down into Egypt with you. That's what we all need. That's what we all want. We need to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And then we need to hear the promises of God that God is with us. And then just like Jacob, we need to act in obedience. It was clearly revealed to Jacob that he should go down into Egypt. Whatever is clearly revealed to us, whether that is to be a minister of reconciliation by preaching the gospel to others, or so far as possible, living at peace with all around us, being peacemakers, or whatever it is that we we read in the scriptures and we know the Lord has called me to this, we need to act out of our reconciliation with God, out of our confidence that God is with us, and we need to obey God. The Lord, recognizing, here I'm thinking of the genealogy, recognizing how God has made and kept promises to us, and then not allowing the world and its standards to tell us what the good life looks like or how we ought to uh, measure success or status 
or importance. And then in the same others-centered way that Jacob is able to enter into the presence of Pharaoh and bless him, we should be those who extend the blessing of God to others. All of this by faith, working through love in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not our own efforts. I'm not proposing some kind of legalistic scheme for you. This all grows out of justification and the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we know that in the same way that Jacob's efforts never could have brought about the realization of your promises, and we know that in the same way that Jacob's sins at many, point, at many points made it so that he could describe the years of his life as few and evil. We know what that's like, Lord. We've tried in our own, own efforts and we've often banged our shins as we've insisted on leaving the straight and narrow path to go into the way that is broad that leads to destruction. But Lord, in your mercy, you've been so kind to us. And in that kindness, you bring us to repentance. Lord, we want to be those who, who bless others, who walk in obedience because of the way that you've justified us by faith in Christ. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would give us hearts that say, as Abraham said, as Jacob said, as Isaiah said, here I am. Whatever you have for me, Lord, however it may appear to jeopardize your goodness to me even, here I am. Lord, we pray that you would work this all through our hearts and help us to love you and love those closest to us, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to walk with you all our days, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.